Bible, uh, which introduces the book like this. Some people think the Bible is a book of rule. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. Uh, they show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, uh, showing you people that you should copy. Uh, the Bible certainly does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story, and it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the centre of the story is a person. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. I just love that introduction, and then it goes into Genesis 1. See, the Bible is not a self-help book. It's not a guidebook to living better and getting what you want in life. It is not providing you with a series of optional extras that might lead to a healthy or wealthy lifestyle. And if you approach the Gospels in the New Testament without realising uh, what they're actually all about and what their purpose is, uh, you can quite easily end up with something quite moralistic and unhelpful. The Gospels are about Jesus, and Mark's Gospel is no exception. From start to finish, Mark has provided you and me with the story of Jesus in a neat, punchy little exposition of Jesus' ministry and his mission. And the stories all served a purpose. They're asking you to question who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why it matters for you and me. And so Mark paints his own picture of Jesus that has this unique perspective. And each of the Gospels really need to be taken on their own merits, each with their own unique view of Jesus. Mark's is all action. Uh, this happens, then that happens. It goes through pretty quickly. And it's a series of like news reports all about Jesus. And he wants you and me to know that Jesus the King has come. He has authority like no one else. And he has a purpose in coming beyond anything that you or I could possibly imagine. And, and actually possibly achieve Jesus alone is the promised Christ, the Messiah, and he alone was faithful through to the very end, knowing full well what was going to happen to him. And so sometimes I meet people that read the Bible but miss Jesus. It's like, oh, it's the most obvious, but sometimes we miss it. So we're starting our series in Mark, not quite at the beginning, is it? Uh, that'll come next week. Uh, but I'd like us to start in this section because it contains what I think is the key verse in chapter 10. So if you have a Bible there, have that open in front of you, that would be really helpful. Uh, we'll look at this in three points. So the first is the king's mission. And there are times in Mark's gospel where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Uh, after each occasion, he, he teaches his disciples not only what's going to happen to him, 
but what it means for those who follow. And even despite knowing the final outcome, Jesus sets out with that purpose. There's this solemn determination to go through with his mission. So in every sense, Jesus leads the way. Have a look at verse 32. As they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid about how they were feeling at this moment. It actually reads as eyewitness testimony. And they're not quite sure why Jesus is setting out quite like this. And they're really afraid. And they know something's going to happen in Jerusalem, but they're apprehensive about it. It's a bit like trying to walk with your kids back to school after racing along with them. Jesus is out in front and the disciples are dragging their heels. They are holding back and they haven't quite understood each time Jesus has explained it to them. It's a genuine fear. I think it's like each of them are asking, what will this mean for me? If I follow Jesus to the position, what will I face? And there's fear of reprisals from their own community, let alone their Roman occupiers. Will the Romans see the coming of the Messiah as an insurrection? And so there's something to be afraid of here and there's something to relate to for you and me. Will the secular government seek me out for my faith? Will my allegiance to Jesus cost me dearly with my family, at my workplace, with my friends? What's going to happen if I stick with Jesus when the world is just so against what he teaches? Now, can I say, if that's you, the story, uh, if Jesus defeated death then there is actually nothing for us to fear. Nothing can happen to you that isn't part of God's sovereign will and his control over your life. And even death isn't the end. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus says to change what you're afraid of uh, into a better kind of fear. Don't be afraid of those who can only kill and afterward do no more. Fear instead one who has authority to cast into hell. That's a bigger fear to worry about. See, Peter has to learn this. Uh, It wasn't until later on that Peter could write this in his letter, 1 Peter 3. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear. Don't be troubled. And it's one of the most common uh, commands in Scripture. Do not fear. The Lord is with you. So back in Mark 10, look at this prediction from Jesus about that ultimate mission that he was on about. So taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And just look at the detail he gives from verse 33. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? He'll be delivered over to the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, sentenced to death, delivered over to the Romans, mocked, spat upon and flogged, scourged, executed, changed everything. What seemed to be the most worst possible outcome, the most humiliating, unjust and cruel death was in fact all part of God's plan all along. It's all part of his grand story. So in the cross, there is complete victory. Sin atoned for once and for all. 
And I was looking at where John Stott says, in a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to pain? And then he goes on to tell the story of the many Buddhist temples that he'd been to in various Asian countries. And he'd stood before the statue of Buddha with its legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, says, as one detached from the agonies of this world. And he said, in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorns, mouth dry, intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain and he entered our world of flesh and blood, of tears and death, and he suffered for us. And that was promised back in the Old Testament. I'm not sure if you'd be able to see this. Suffering servant who was to come was truly despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, familiar with pain, and he bore our grief and our pain, and he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. And can I say, if you are not yet a Christian... Thanks for coming today. It's really good to see you here. And it's great to have you. But can I encourage you to go to the cross and learn what it is that Jesus has done for you? And I'm constantly needing to do that, to see the extent of God's love for me and what it really cost him. It's the heart of the gospel. And each of the gospels have the cross in their sights Mark's is just quicker to get there than the others because his is the shortest. But the focal point is the gospel, uh, the, the cross. And Jesus came with that purpose. That was his mission. And you can't follow Jesus without forsaking your sin that he paid the price for. You and I are called to repent, to turn from that sin and, and just receive this gift that's on offer. Uh, and so if you haven't repented, please do so. I'd be happy to come and talk with you afterwards. I'm sure there are others here that would be happy to talk to you too. Come and find the forgiveness and the freedom that Jesus is offering you, even today. All made possible because of that cross. So the cross changes everything. You and I don't have to be afraid. Jesus has gone ahead of us and he leads the way and he opens the way. The king's mission means you will be safely brought into his kingdom simply by trusting in what he did for you. Your acceptance is not about what you do. It's about Jesus and what he did. I don't know if you've ever had the experience when someone is telling you something and you just don't take in a word that they say. Uh, it happens to me too often. Uh, maybe it's a bloke thing. Uh, the disciples haven't been listening. And Jesus has said things several times, but it's just gone in one ear, hit the brick wall and out again. Uh, look out for this blatantly self-centred and self-serving question uh, from two of the disciples in particular. It's James and John, and there's presumption from the outset. So verse 35, 
They came up to him and said, Teacher, we, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. If my kids said that to me, well, I'd be listening at that point, wouldn't you? Uh, and so he says to them, well, what do you want me to do? And so they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. No biggie, Jesus. We just want thrones next to yours. That is an outrageous question, and we're meant to see it that way. And Jesus has just finished telling them about his impending suffering and death, and all they can think about is the glory for themselves. And it's atrocious. Three years of ministry training with Jesus and failed to learn anything of Jesus' servant approach. And their way is really the opposite. They're jockeying for position and privilege. There's dreams of glory all for themselves. And I'm sorry to say that I have seen this. And there's a danger when you come to the end of your time at Bible college when you think that you've earned reward and privilege and you enter the ministry thinking that you know it all and that you deserve a place of honour and respect. And so you treat people as mere stepping stones to your future position of power ends well. And it is rife in the church. Uh, the author Paul Tripp says that there's a leadership crisis in the church, the wider church, uh, where we've settled, settled for unbiblical models of leadership and a culture of bullies in ministry, flawed shepherds who mistreat God's flock of character. See, it's all of us too. We expect people in ministry and our leaders uh, to be something that they're not. And so we, we are let down when they don't do it. And you wonder, with James and John being part of the inner circle among the disciples, that here they're actually trying to knock Peter up on this within ourselves. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, it's actually their mum who pushes them forward. So it's actually worse. Uh, and, and they've come from a family that's perhaps used to servants and privilege. Uh, we know their dad owned a fishing business. They're the sons of Zebedee. Uh, and so that was possible. And so they expect to earn prestige or, or God's favour and have this position. They want the throne and it's a power grab. And they've fallen for their pride. Look at Jesus' response, verse 38. He said, said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I'm to be baptised? Not, not the grand final premiership cup that we'll hold up together. It is the cup of God's wrath against sin. And the baptism he faced wasn't going to be like a sprinkling of water or the pouring of water like we might do with a, a newborn or a new believer, but a baptism of suffering and death. And their response, I'm not sure that they really understood what they were saying here. Uh, they said to him, we are able. Really? Uh, their nickname, Sons of Thunder... Well, that might indicate that they reckon they're up for it. But it is not going to be quite the same for them. And so I'll need to explain that, but let's read on. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptised, you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or my left 
is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Uh, Jesus promises that they will face what he faces. It's just not in the same sense. Uh, He is going to face a substitutionary atonement where the sins of the world, yours and my sin, are taken on himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. But they won't have to do it in that way. But they, in a sense, they will face persecution and suffering before glory. And they will need to take up their cross. And that is the pattern. You get this mixed up, you'll end up with healthy and wealthy theology. The, the, um, the problem with that is that it's not promised in Scripture. Scripture promises you persecution instead. Uh, their request is not for him to say. That's interesting, isn't it? It's one of those points where it's actually the Father's business to grant that banquet. Isn't that enough just to be there? Do we really need to jostle for position? And look at this reaction of the other disciples when they hear of it. Uh, Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That might be a righteous indignation. How dare they big big note themselves like that? Or get to Jesus first. Which is it? And we need to reflect on this whole approach. It is worldly, it is self-centred, it's self-aggrandising, and it is exactly what you or I do too. We put ourselves first every time. And the idea of one-upmanship is lurking within every one of us. And we need to beware of treating our involvement in church like some sort of corporate ladder. If you treat it as a series of steps towards something greater, then you haven't learnt the principle that Jesus teaches here. So we need to heed this warning that we don't make the same mistake as James and John. And it's selfless service, isn't it? Jesus has something to teach you and me about greatness. Uh, So he called them uh, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Uh, the world does that all the time. In the political sphere, uh, we, we talk about ministers and public servants. We're, we're not so keen on overlords, grand high emperors, and supreme commanders. Certainly in Australia, we kind of avoid that sort of language, don't we? We have checks and balances because we know what absolute power does. And so we, we have to build that into our system. And I think it comes from a very healthy worldview where we know what people are really capable of. Uh, but there's a really strong command here from Jesus. Verse 43, It shall not be so among you. Not so with you. This isn't optional. Uh, there is no place for that behaviour in God's church. Uh, 1 Peter 5 uses the same language in his instruction for elders, uh, where he says, not domineering over the flock. It's the same idea, it's the same word, actually, for not lording it over the flock. Uh, An elder needs to be a servant under the chief shepherd. Uh, But it applies to every follower, whether you hold a position or not. Jesus says there's a better way. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, And whoever would be first must be slave of all. Uh, There's two terms used here. 
a servant, otherwise known as a deacon, a diakonos, and then a slave, uh, which is the word doulos. Uh, so the servant is one who serves for others' benefit, waiting on tables, <laughs> but the servants in their culture got paid for that. The slave didn't. The slave was one who, who belongs to and serves another and was even lower on the pecking order uh, to the servant. The slave is bottom rung, the last and the least of all. And isn't it interesting that uh, the Apostle Paul uses that of himself? I think it's Romans 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant, a doulos of Jesus Christ. See, in God's kingdom, true greatness is characterised by the degree of service to others. And so look, look with me at this amazing final verse, because this is where we've been heading. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, each time Jesus explains to his disciples what's going to happen, uh, there comes this call to follow him. And the cost and the nature of discipleship are in full view, especially in this gospel. In Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 8, you'll see after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, <laughs> Jesus explains that need to take up your cross and to follow him. And your cross doesn't atone for sin. It's how God sanctifies you and prepares you and grows you in his plans for you. And with Jesus, there's this offer, but also a demand the offer is free. That's there for you to accept his free gift of salvation, which you cannot earn. But the demand is also total. He requires your thoughtful and total commitment. And so God's kingdom is topsy-turvy. True greatness doesn't come through the way we would normally expect it. Uh, a study Bible that I use put it this way. Intellectual sophistication, physical abilities, social popularity or any of the world's ways of assessing worth, are not the scale that God uses to measure your significance. The choice is really clear. Are you self-seeking, or will you self-suffer his? And I think we've seen today that believing involves belonging. It includes your participation. And there are so many ways that we can serve one another here at One Hope. Financially, we've heard about that. Physically, socially, spiritually, prayerfully, uh, with Christ-centred, Christ-exalting and Christ-like service. And it's so encouraging uh, to see people lead the way for us. Service in God's kingdom is not a stepping stone to greatness. There is no corporate ladder to climb up. You don't work your way up out of service to suddenly being served. Service is actually where the true greatness is found. And in those moments, to take the rubbish out, to pick up a towel and wash the feet of someone else, as Jesus did. And can I say, if you are yet to serve here at One Hope, perhaps it's time for you to grab a shovel. Uh, I hope I don't start a fight for the vacuum cleaner afterwards, but maybe that would be a good thing. There's no place for fancy purple robes for bishops or expensive corporate jets for senior pastors. There is only one throne that counts, and Jesus is the ultimate servant king. His greatest service 
was in giving his life as a ransom for you. And that is his atoning work. He offered the price required to God. And the cross shows you how much he loves you and what he did for you. And of course, we can go to Philippians 2, which says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And if I read on, let's finish with this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would uh, forgive each of us uh, for the times where we haven't lived like this, when we've put ourselves first and let our pride take us to places where we're and selfish and looked out for number one. Father, might we see more clearly our servant king, uh, the Lord Jesus, and, and what he did to serve us. And might that spur us to serve others in the same way. Help us to put aside the desire for power and privilege and position of others. This year, Lord, might we learn to serve you better and serve one another as you would have us. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.